Welcome to My on Mondays, an explorative approach to the possessive my through narratives, art, and sound. Each Monday brings a new creation and unique perspective. My on Mondays is brought to you by Ming Studios, a contemporary art space and international artist residency program dedicated to the exhibition, experience, and exploration of arts and culture. Along with exhibiting artists from around the world, Ming also serves the community by hosting innovative programs including performances, workshops, screenings, readings, artist talks, and other cultural activities. For more information or if you'd like to participate in My on Mondays, you can visit our website at mingstudios.org. Hello and welcome to the 21st episode of Mayan Mondays. We're pleased to start off the new year with a piece by Christy Claymore. Christy is a writer, researcher, freelance editor, and former adjunct English professor. She's an emerging poet whose work has been included in the previous three anthologies published by The Cabin, as well as in The Panorama Project, a pandemic art segment underwritten by the Idaho Press Tribune and Searle's Place. She lives in Boise, Idaho, where she loves supporting the arts, running in the foothills, and raising her two wild boys. Her piece today is titled, My Grandmother. My Grandmother. Her name was Catherine Beatrice Claymore. She was born in Cannonball, North Dakota, on New Year's Day in 1915. I always called her Grammy. She called me Christy Lovebug. What follows is my experience of her. Certainly her children, my cousins, and my brother have their own special accounts. Standing only about five foot one, Grammy was small, but her presence and her love were large and particular to each individual she shared her life with. One, my grandmother's hands. Years of difficulty and toil weathered my grandmother's hands, yet she didn't allow the harsh forces of time and hardship to chafe her skin or generate brittleness in her bones. Instead, she maintained their strength by engaging them in deeds of care. When I was a child, she took my small hands and her aged ones and massaged them finger by finger around my knuckles and at the center of my palms. She told me stories of her childhood her time in boarding schools, and her experiences as a mother. Time flickered on, and her same hands, soft, tan, and as taut as worn leather, took my hands again, mine now more rigid and calloused, and she caressed them as I wept in teenage frustration. I can't remember the gentle words she spoke, but I remember her gentle touch, which surpassed my hands, reaching my heart, healing wounds that ordinary hands could never reach. A few years later, I, now a young adult, took her hands in mine. It was the night before her third and most critical heart surgery. Though she tried to study them, her hands trembled. Remembering her soothing methods, I attempted her technique. I massaged each hand, finger by finger, around the knuckles and at the center of her palms. Choked with tears, she thanked me. About 36 hours later, I was escorted into the intensive care unit to visit my recovering grandmother. She's quite swollen, they said. 
It's normal after this sort of procedure. I resolved to act as naturally as I would in any other circumstance for her sake. But when I saw how dramatically altered she was, I could not hold back my sorrow. I reached for her right hand, but the tubes that penetrated her flesh convoluted our contact, so I made my way to the left side of the bed. I slipped my hand into hers, which was blossomed open by the swelling. She tried to squeeze my hand. She tried with great effort, but the bloating inhibited her grasp. I gently gripped her fingers, said my goodbye. I had to leave town. I told her I loved her and that God was with her. She tried to squeeze again and mouthed, I love you, I love you. Her fingers mildly brushed mine that now rested on her palm. We were told a few days later that her health was progressing. But about a week later, I found myself gazing sorely over her open coffin. Timidly, I raised my hand over her motionless body, slowly reached over and brushed my fingers over her hand. Tanness was still hued in her skin, but a bruise-like purple had manifested itself. Hands that were shaped and creviced with nearly 90 years of life lay still and so cold. And for the first time, they could not comfort me. I wrote this for a creative writing course when I was 19 or 20, probably within a year of my grandmother's passing. My grandmother was hospitalized in March of 2002 at the age of 87. As a child, she had rheumatic fever, and it had weakened her heart for the rest of her life. As she awaited major heart surgery, we, her family, knew it was possible that she was close to the end. I spent my 19th birthday in St. Helena, California, sleeping in old nurses' quarters. My family, including Grammy in her wheelchair, sang happy birthday to me on the roof of a small hospital. Grammy passed away about a week later. I'm convinced that if she hadn't endured that fever as a child, she would have made it past 100 years old easily. She was a force. In the years that followed, I ached for her presence, for her insight. I won a couple writing awards for an essay I wrote involving Native American folklore. My grandmother, a proud member of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, would have been so proud of me. I graduated college, went to grad school, and taught college-level courses. Grammy would be so proud. I got married, I had two children, and Grammy would have loved my husband and my babies. But my marriage grew increasingly troubled, and I had to leave home and file for divorce. And while a couple members of my family criticized me for the bravest, most heartbreaking decision I ever made, I knew my grandmother would have only offered me her warmth, her wisdom, and her grace. About a year prior to my leaving, in the midst of some tumultuous times, my uncle sent me a manuscript. It was an informal memoir my grandmother penned on and off during some of the final years of her life. Prior to that, I didn't know it existed. It was relatively short, but it took me months to read through because I'd have to pause and absorb the content, the precious, 
fascinating and tragic days of my grandmother's younger years. Years that gave shape and texture to an extraordinary woman's hands, to an extraordinary woman's life. Two, my great-grandmother's hair, my grandmother's hair, my hair. Time and time again, I turn back to the details that captivated me in my grandmother's manuscript. Her father was born in Germany and immigrated to the United States in 1896. She talked fondly of her mother, Elizabeth, who was the daughter of an Irishman and also, in my grandmother's words, a full Lakota woman. Elizabeth was deaf as a result of a childhood illness. She had eight children, at least two who died as infants or toddlers. Elizabeth, as my grandmother described her, was strong in the backbone of her family and the farmstead. Her hair was often long, down to her waist, a native woman's glory. As my grandmother explained in her memoir, Indian women took pride in their hair. The tradition was to wear their hair long, only time to cut it is when there is a death in the family. That was a sign of mourning. My grandmother described, My mother's hair, as I remember hers, was very long, way past her hips. Eventually it was cut short, just above her shoulders, as I remember. Her mother, Elizabeth, grieved when her older sons, and then also my grandmother, only four and a half at the time, were sent to what were called boarding schools, or as we know them, residential schools. These schools have made news in recent months, as many graves of Native children have been found at a number of sites, both in Canada and in the United States. Deb Holland, Secretary of the Interior, has spearheaded a federal Indian boarding school initiative, an investigation and review of these residential schools. Children put in these schools were forced to be separated from their families for most months out of the year. My grandmother and her family lived in Cannonball, North Dakota, and she describes the journey from her town to the nearest residential school in Fort Yates. She said of her family's experience. Since we were a degree of Indian, the Bureau of Indian Affairs had boarding schools built throughout Indian country. My brothers, when old enough, which was five years old, had to go to Fort Yates boarding school. This was mandatory, and if you were miles away, you stayed the full nine months, never going home, not even for holidays. Of course, no one had cars. Transportation was by team, and if families lived in the vicinity of a school, then they could go home on Saturdays and holidays. So this meant that her brothers, Warren and Johnny, were supposed to stay the full nine months. She said, the winters were severe, and 18 miles by team was a travel. However, it was always hard to keep my oldest brother there. He'd run away from school and get home. A lot of boys did that, and many froze to death. My grandmother started attending residential school when she was just four and a half years old. She was sent a little early because her younger brother, Benny, fell ill with spinal meningitis. Prior to this Benny's birth, she lost another younger brother named Benny to pneumonia. 
When the second Benny became sick, her father brought him and her mother to Fort Yates Hospital, and from there brought my grandmother to the Fort Yates boarding school, as they had no one else to care for her. She remembers fighting the nuns, kicking and biting. They were frightening. She explained, I had braids as all the Indian girls did before they went there. Well, they cut them off. And for the traditional, they wore braids as long hair unless you mourned the death of relatives. And that only happened after you became an elder married with family. So for me, I didn't like what they were doing to me. I wasn't going to stay there. The final part of the statement, I wasn't going to stay there, is emphasized with an underline. And she didn't stay there. At the age of four and a half years old, she ran away. She described, So one evening at dusk, I sneaked out the gate between the school grounds and the town, and I ran up the sidewalk towards the hospital. Some lady knew who I was and pointed to my mom's room, and believe me, I barged in and scared to death. Mom grabbed me and hugged me and let me see Benny. After her brave flight from the Fort Yates boarding school, she had to then face yet another tragic situation. Her little brother, Benny, was dying. Grammy explained, The sad part was, I realized Benny was very ill, just did not seem right, that he was so quiet and laid so still, just was not the happy little guy he used to be. And of course, the doctor was in and out and nurses, but the nurse knew how to talk to mom. And mom knew Benny was dying and she was crying and trying to tell me. My father came and was very sad as Benny was a little live wire and fun. We were all sad. I remember mom getting all Benny's clothes together and putting them in the coffin with him. That's the tradition, mom said. He's going on a long trip, on a journey, so he's got to have his clothes. I could always understand her. I just could not believe he's gone and is never going to come back. The coffin. It's all so strange. It was my first heartbreak. About five or so years later after losing Benny, my grandmother suffered another catastrophic heartbreak when she lost her beloved mother. Elizabeth passed away after giving birth to her eighth child. My grandmother was 10 years old. She remembered thinking, what is to become of us? In her dying moments, Elizabeth gave instructions to my grandmother in sign language, telling her how to bathe and care for the new infant brother. My grandmother describes, Ellen and Ernie were going out and coming in, but they didn't understand death, she said of her two younger siblings. Mom's sister, she said, prepared her for burial. Uncle Sam Gayton, Jim Gayton, and wife Aunt Maggie, and Mr. Parson helped bury Mom. It was January, and there was deep snow and cold weather. Mr. Parson's wife took Bill. Bill was a newborn baby. Mr. Parson's wife took Bill home with her. They kept him until he was three years old. There were some Lakota at the burial. I don't know who, but we could hear them sing Lead Kindly Light in the Lakota language. Losing her mother was not only a grave loss to my grandmother emotionally, but it split the family up. She says, this was a traumatic affair for us. And she described how the children went different places to be cared for. 
She and her sister Ellen went to a different residential school. This time, she was sent to Bismarck Indian School. I have the dark, thick hair of these women. It's a lot to manage, so I usually keep it shoulder length, if not shorter. But after reading this account, I decided to grow it out. It's growing and growing, and it is a lot to manage, but it's a tribute to my grandmother and her mother, Elizabeth. When I cut my hair, what remains of my head will represent my grief for the little girl my grandmother was when she lost her beloved family members. And I will mourn the loss she felt as her braids were shorn from her small head. What did they do with all that stolen, beautiful hair? My braids will remain, though. With the help of my dear friend and caustic artist, Heather Elizabeth B., they will be pinned to the wax of bees. Wax and caustic is a natural material that preserves. My braids will be a small but sacred monument to the loss my grandmother and others experienced, their homesickness, the cultural identity that their oppressors tried to take from them, and also recognition of the genocide that continued for all those lost in the graves that are only now being recognized in national headlines. Three, my grandmother's voice. My grandmother's informal memoir highlighted some stories I had heard before. However, I was astonished at the details I had never heard before. For instance, my grandmother, who always seemed shy and somewhat soft-spoken, starred in operettas and won prizes in speech and oration contests. I never saw that side of her. My grandmother described these successes with much enthusiasm. She seemed to hit a stride in Bismarck, which makes me feel relieved, especially in light of the traumatic experience she had at the previous residential school. She described, I was very worried, having lots of feelings about this new school, but I had my younger sister with me to be strong for. It took time, and in comparison to Fort Yates boarding school, it was much better in many ways. There were five or more tribes represented at this all-girls school, and it seemed they had at least a few teachers who were, astonishingly, advocates for Native cultures, at least in comparison to Fort Yates and other residential schools. One of my grandmother's favorite productions involved Native regalia and was what my grandmother deemed an Indian operetta. It was called Feast of the Red Corn, said my grandmother. It had three scenes, and there was singing, dancing, and speaking. We dressed in authentic Indian costume. It was beautiful. I loved it. She goes on to say that she took the lead part in all the operettas. She won first place four times in public speaking contests. She won first place a fifth time when she attended the Chemua Indian School in Oregon. As I read all of this, I wondered what changed. How does someone with such a compelling voice become so quiet? I have always been shy. So when she was alive, I felt I understood her shyness. While I was forced into public speaking by way of teaching, I found myself growing even more unsure about my own voice as my marriage became more and more strained. And as I contemplated making my way out of it, 
wondering how it ever became what it was. I read her account of meeting my grandfather, Grant Claymore. It was during World War II. He was a tall, handsome officer. He was of native descent and grew up where she did. She was smitten right away. It was August of 1941, and she was in California visiting her brother Bill, who was in the Army. He was otherwise detained when she arrived, so he sent his friend, Staff Sergeant Claymore, to pick her up and help her find a hotel. She described seeing my grandfather for the very first time. In her memoir, she says, I almost went into shock when I saw this handsome staff sergeant come down the steps. I had no problem with conversation because we came from the same reservation and he knew my brother Bill very well. I cried during the section because I have never met my grandfather. He passed away more than a decade before I was born. I had mainly heard about my grandfather, the decorated war hero. But I also heard about my grandfather, the alcoholic, the husband and father who at times wreaked havoc on his household. I never heard my grandmother speak about this part of her life, and she did not write about it. She only had praise for her late husband, but I grew up hearing about these certain troubles from my dad. She lost her husband to cancer in 1970. Altogether, they had four children, though their firstborn, Cheryl, died in infancy. Yet another heartbreak my grandmother had to endure. She detailed the loss of her daughter, Cheryl, in her short memoir. The baby died suddenly while my grandfather was overseas. Shortly after this description, she ends her memoir. The final paragraph announces the birth of her second daughter. She said, Judy Ann Claymore was born on her father's birthday. He did not know this for some time as he was engaged in the Battle of the Bulge in Germany. She went on to have two more children, my father and my uncle, and a relatively long, rich, but at times still difficult life. Though this is where her written account stops. It is a supposition, but after feeling silenced by my own difficult marriage, I wonder if the years of difficulty my grandmother didn't discuss in her memoir subdued her in a way that made her younger self a stranger to me. Cultivating a voice through speaking and writing has been a challenge I have pursued, this podcast being my first full-length foray into this type of thing. And as I dug into this project, I found a long-lost audio file from a nonfiction writing course I took in grad school. I was searching my computer files for material, and I clicked on an audio file. Suddenly, I heard 25-year-old me discussing my desire to do a larger piece about my grandmother. It was an emotional moment, because across the years, I had forgotten that this was an idea I had at least 13 years ago. While I don't often hear myself in a recorded format, I could hear a touch of youth that no longer inhabits my voice. Between the time I was 25 and now seems a lifetime. So many events, failures, successes, dramas, victories. All things I would want to discuss with Grammy Catherine, all these things have come and gone, and I am still trying to establish my voice. But there is my grandmother's voice, a power she had when young, 
one that dwindled over the years, which of course is something I'd also like to discuss with her. Of course, my grandmother lived a much fuller life than I have detailed here, and I intend to honor that even more going forward. But I think she would be pleased with what I have so far. I hope so. And I have this uncanny, inexplicable sense that she is listening. So as I started writing, I also started talking to her again about her hands, our hair, and her voice. And I asked her if she would give me the power of voice as an inheritance, and in turn, through this project, voice as a gift I intend to give back to her in the retelling of her story. Thanks so much for joining us today. Tune in next Monday for a piece by South African multidisciplinary artist Barnett Cohen.